0: Let's get started.
1: Scott here. The official start of summer is traditionally Memorial Day. The advertisers have convinced most Americans of this so that they can make money selling summer-related items. But the astronomical start of summer is June 21st. And as this is generally the time when the longest amount of daylight occurs, it is at this time of year that stargazing is pushed back almost a bedtime for some folks, including some of the younger folks. Still, there is much to see in June skies. Stepping out as I generally do on my front porch as darkness falls, which I have determined is facing more or less to the north, I can look almost straight up and find the Big Dipper. As I have mentioned in past broadcasts, the Dipper can lead to stars in quite a few constellations. This can help begin the process of learning where constellations are during various seasons, and finding these first, one can use them to find others that lie nearby that do not have the benefit of guide stars to locate them. For example, if one starts with the bowl star closest to the handle and draws a line diagonally across the bowl and then extends it, one might find that the line splits a pair of stars of near equal brightness. The rightmost of the pair is Castor, the other is Pollux. These two stars mark the heads of Gemini the Twins. In the early evening skies, as stars begin to appear, one can find Gemini situated as if the twins are standing on the western horizon. You might need a good star map to help, many of which are available online. But the other reason to find this constellation is that close to the horizon in this direction are two planets, Mercury and Mars. Mars has been lingering in the western skies for some time now, and I have mentioned it in past broadcasts. We have now moved so far in front of Mars in our orbit that, from our vantage point, we are looking past the Sun to see it. Soon it will be gone from our evening skies as we press forward in our orbit. Mercury is a relative newcomer, but a bit of a challenge because it is so close to the horizon. Might be best to wait to look for it closer to the 17th or 18th when it and Mars will be near to each other as well as near Pollux in Gemini, as Gemini slowly disappears in the western sky. Will make for a pretty pairing of planets at that time. For more on the planet front, I can swing my view to the eastern sky. A bright point of light can be found there, the planet Jupiter. Jupiter is in opposition on June 10th. This means that the Earth has moved to a position in its orbit, where the Sun is in one direction and Jupiter is in the opposite In effect, when the sun is setting in the west, from our viewpoint, Jupiter is rising in the east. Opposition of any of the outer planets is generally when we are closest to them in the current viewing. Mars, for example, was at opposition last July and brightest in our skies at that time. Now it is Jupiter's turn and it is quite bright in the east after sunset, making it a simple naked eye target to find. Jupiter is now among the stars of Ophiuchus one of the 13 constellations that lie along the sun's path in the sky. The superstitious marked this collection of constellations as the zodiac, but refused to include Ophiuchus in the mix. This is one of many lines of arguments used to show that astrology has no basis in reality. Sad that in our so-called enlightened era, this ancient superstition still fascinates a large number of people, even among young people who should know better if they have taken science classes in their schooling, one finds interest. But I digress. As darkness continues to fall in the northeastern sky, one might spot a group of three stars, widely spaced, that mark a near isosceles triangle in the sky. Recall that an isosceles triangle is one with two of its sides equal in length. This triangular group of stars is called the Summer Triangle gets its name because it is noticeable and rising in the eastern sky near the beginning of summer. The Summer Triangle is not a constellation. Such groups of stars that are not official constellations but make up familiar shapes are referred to as asterisms. The Big Dipper is another asterism as it makes up a portion of the official constellation Ursa Major, the Big Bear. Some asterisms are formed within a constellation, some from stars from different constellations. The summer triangle is the latter. The brightest and most westerly of the three stars making up the summer triangle is called Vega in the constellation Lyra the harp. Just near Vega, one might see a rectangle of stars. The rectangle would form the structure that holds the strings of the harp. Vega could be pictured as a jewel embedded in that harp. East of Vega, closer to the horizon in the early evening sky, is Deneb. It is the brightest star in a constellation called Cygnus the Swan. Once above the horizon, one finds that Cygnus contains an asterism itself called the Northern Cross. Deneb is at the head of the cross, and another star, Albireo, is the foot of the cross. A pair of stars on either side of the line connecting these two finish the cross. They also mark the beginnings of the wings of the swan. For a star beyond each of these marked the tips of the wings of a swan in flight. As a swan, Deneb marks the tail and Alberio the head. The southern star that finishes off the Summer Triangle is called Altair. It is the brightest star in Achille the Eagle. Stars on either side of Altair mark the outstretched wings of the eagle, while a pair of stars south of Altair mark the body. This constellation may be a bit of a challenge because the stars other than Altair are dim. Light pollution definitely would make them hard to pick up. There are other constellations visible in the skies of June, more than a few that I have mentioned in past broadcasts that can be found using the Big Dipper. Leo the lion, found using the back stars of the bowl of the Dipper heading southward to Regulus, its brightest star. Boötes the herdsman, found using the handle of the Dipper to arc to Arcturus, the brightest star in the kite-shaped Boötes, and continuing that curve one reaches Spica in Virgo the Maiden. And, of course, the front pair of stars in the bowl always point to Polaris, the North Star, ever fixed as the direction north in our skies to help find directions at night. In the warmer evening skies, all of these can be found a bit more easily than in the colder winter or even somewhat warmer spring skies. Makes for a good activity at the end of the day after swimming or beaching or grilling out, whatever the activity one enjoys in these warm summer days.
0: planet Earth broke a couple climate records in May. On May 11, 2019, climate researchers at the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii measured our CO2 level to be 415 parts per million. Now, if you go double check that number now, now that we're in June, you're going to find that number is actually lower than 415 parts per million. And that's because the planet breathes The planet's CO2 levels typically rise in October, November, December, all the way through the winter months until around May, and then the CO2 levels start to drop again. In June through September, the CO2 levels continue to drop, and that's because the plants and the algae on Earth are photosynthesizing. They're inhaling CO2. So they're taking up millions of tons of CO2 to make sugars, to make plant cell wall, just to make the plant grow. And then from October onwards, the plants and the algae just don't photosynthesize as much, and they might even release some of that CO2, and that's like exhaling. So this May, we hit this record of 450 parts per million, but that's always in flux. What's nice about this weather station is that it's on a Hawaiian island, so it's out in the middle of the ocean and isn't affected by direct human activity as much as an observatory that might be located in the middle of a big city somewhere, full of people with factories and cars zipping by, producing all the CO2. The Mauna Lower Observatory is situated at a high elevation in the middle of the ocean, so it's not surrounded by as much vegetation or industrialization. In 1958, when they first began collecting CO2 data there, the average CO2 concentration was 315 parts per million. Now it's 415 parts per million. So it's gone up by 100 parts per million since 1958. So that's a 31% increase in carbon dioxide levels in only 61 years. 31%. So carbon dioxide levels have gone from 315 to 415 parts per million. That's exactly 100 parts per million over the last 61 years. That's an average of 1.6 parts per million per year, but that's not actually how it goes. It turns out that the rate of increase in CO2 is not stable. It's actually increasing now. Researchers have observed that over the last 12 months, the change in carbon dioxide in our air has gone up 3 parts per million. But in recent years, our CO2 level was rising at 2.5 parts per million per year. Now it's up to 3 parts per million year increase. So the amount of CO2 that we're putting into the air is actually going up. This could be because we're putting more CO2 out because of burning fossil fuels. It's thought that a lot of this growth is due to industrial output in developing India, but a change in CO2 levels could also have to do with how much of this gas is actually being absorbed by the oceans, by trees, by soil, etc. It looks like the last time Earth had carbon dioxide levels this high was something like 2.6 million years ago during the Pliocene Epoch. Scientists think that by looking at the ice cores in the Arctic, and they also look at ocean sediments and mummified plants. So 2.6 million years ago is the last time we had CO2 levels this high. During that period, the Pliocene, Antarctica was covered with plants, global temperatures were 2 to 3 degrees centigrade higher, and our sea level was 10 to 20 meters higher than it is now. And, of course, this is because CO2, carbon dioxide, is a greenhouse gas. Just the way that the inside of your car gets warmer than the outside air when it's parked out in the sun, CO2 has a way of trapping heat inside the Earth's atmosphere. We presented a thorough history about how scientists figured out that CO2 was a greenhouse gas on this show back on November 26, 2019. Check out our Bench Talk show called The Woman Who Discovered Greenhouse Gas. Well, what's the effect of all this extra CO2 that's being put into the air? Well, I wanted to tell you about a recent article about the height, or I guess you'd call it the depth of ice, in Antarctica, you know, around the South Pole. This article was published in the May 16, 2019 issue of Geophysical Research Letters, and we'll post this on our Facebook page like we always do. The thickness of ice around the South Pole was measured by satellite in this paper between 1992 and 2017. They took some 800 million satellite measurements of ice thickness over that 25-year period. Basically, they found that the ice is thinning. In West Antarctica, the ice has thinned by 24% since 1992 and they can integrate all that data into a climate model about the role of snowfall in making the ice thicker. And they were able to distinguish between the two primary causes of ice thickness changes. The snowfall makes the ice thicker, but the melting makes the ice thinner. But the bottom line is the ice has thinned up to 122 meters in some parts of West Antarctica. That's 400 feet of ice gone. They calculate that all of this melting of ice around the South Pole has put 4.5 millimeters of total water into our planet's ocean. That's a bit more than 0.18 inches, about a fifth of an inch, over a 25-year period. That's pretty amazing. Overall, it's been calculated that the Earth's average sea level has increased somewhere between 5 to 8 inches between the years 1900 to 1990. But this rise in sea level has been accelerating in recent years. The amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is accelerating, and so are the temperatures. And it's not just in Antarctica. It appears that the melting of glaciers in Greenland and the Arctic has also been speeding up recently. There was another article, really a shocking article, that was just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in their May 20, 2019 issue, This article is written by a group of Earth scientists who are developing really sophisticated models for predicting sea level rise over the next 80 years. Now, up to now, the best estimates have been published by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, back in 2013. At that time, the projected levels of sea level rise were thought to be about 3 feet by the year 2100. But since 2013... These climate modelers are developing new mathematical formulas for trying to use data like global CO2 levels and trying to create a more sophisticated and more accurate algorithm. This alone is really challenging to predict. Then there's the question of how water expands when it's warm. That makes the sea level rise too. And so does the amount of melting of sea ice like glaciers and ice sheets. And then when ice melts, it slightly changes the gravitational pull of the globe and also the rotational pull of the revolving globe. I'm not a climatologist, but I think all this is being taken into account, too, in their modeling. Then finally, there's more satellite data now than there was back in 2013. So this provides more data to use to develop these models. So, back in 2013, the IPCC predicted that sea levels would rise about 3 feet by the year 2100. This latest estimate, however, says that it's at least plausible that sea level rise could exceed 2 meters by 2100. That's 6.5 feet, so that's more than twice what IPCC was predicting They suggest that this sea level rise could result in a land loss of almost 700,000 square miles and cause 187 million people to be displaced by flooding. Now, if you think back on the hard times experienced by Europe, when all those refugees from Syria and Libya and other Middle Eastern countries were crossing the Mediterranean to enter Europe, that was a million people. Now we're talking about 187 million people who are going to be looking for another place to live. That's pretty monumental. Now, who are these 187 million people who could be displaced? Internationally, it's the Asian countries who would experience the most flooding. For instance, almost the entire population of Bangladesh might have to move. But also London, New York City, New Orleans, Miami, and Boston would also be dealing with loss of shoreline. Where in the world are all these refugees going? Now, one of the questions raised by climate change is, who does it hurt the most? The general conclusion among researchers is that climate change hurts the poorer countries the most. First of all, it's the warmer parts of the world that are most severely hurt by climate change. And it's the tropical and subtropical parts of the world where there are the most lower-income countries. Secondly, lower-income countries have less money to prevent the damage caused by climate change. So they have less money to deal with flooding, drought, forest fires, etc. And once the damage is done, like from a hurricane or tornado, they have fewer resources to remediate the effects. So it's the lower-income countries that are probably going to be hurt the most. But what's ironic is that it's the wealthier countries that are putting most of the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. There was an article published very recently, May 14, 2019, that looked into the issue of economic inequality and climate change. This article was written by a pair of Stanford scientists, and it was also published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. They were specifically studying the years 1961 to 2010. And in this paper, they report that cooler nations, which tend to be wealthier countries, they could actually reap economic benefits from warmer temperatures. Whereas lower-income nations that are located in the warmer part of the globe tend to be hurt more by warmer temperatures. So they basically conclude that climate change is actually leading to a wider gap between the wealthier and the poorer countries. They divided the world's nations into one of three groups, and it was based on how much CO2 each nation is putting into the air. First, there's the 18 countries where the per capita CO2 emissions are the lowest since 1961. So, some examples are Brazil, Nigeria, India. They're not putting that much CO2 in the air per capita. They calculated that anthropogenic climate change had an impact on their economy of minus 27 minus 27% that is now the second group were the 36 countries with an intermediate co2 emissions per capita that's countries like china and australia these intermediate co2 emitters they had an economic impact of minus 24 so the lowest emitters had an impact of minus 27% on their economy The intermediate had an impact on their economy of minus 24 percent. The third group consists of the 19 countries who are putting the most CO2 into the air. They saw an economic impact of plus 13 percent. So for them, climate change is actually having a positive effect on their economy. Now, we're talking about countries like Canada, Norway, and Sweden. Notice that these high CO2 producers are in the northern parts of the northern hemisphere. It's cold up there, so they probably need to burn more fossil fuel just to stay warm, etc. But if the air warms up there a bit due to climate change, they will save money on all that heating. So climate change is having a negative impact, like 27%, 24%, in the countries that aren't putting as much CO2 into the atmosphere, whereas the countries putting the most CO2 in the air had a positive economic impact, positive 13%. These authors claim that economic inequality between the haves and the have-nots is now 25% more in this warmer world that we live in now than it would have been in a world without global warming. Now, I should tell you that there's some questions among researchers about these exact numbers. For instance, there's a Berkeley economist by the name of Solomon Shang who calculated for a 2017 paper that the U.S. economy loses 1.2% of its GDP for every 1 degree centigrade increase in average temperature. So the exact numbers involved in all this are still being determined. But even Shang's paper basically agrees that the relative differences between the poorest and richest countries might be intensified with global warming. So in my mind, maybe the ultimate question is not what effect climate change is going to have on us and our planet in the future. To me, maybe it's more of a question of what are we going to do about all these effects that are already happening? unusual cold in the western states, a record-breaking heat wave in the southeast, widespread flooding in the Midwest so that corn farmers haven't even been able to get into the field to plant yet. And on that topic, I can tell you that NASA just reported that the United States had the most rainfall in the last 12 months than in the last 124 years of record-keeping. The continental U.S. received more than 36 inches of rain between May of last year and now. That's a full six inches more than average. Then there's these 470 tornadoes during the month of May. Not a record breaker for that month, but really high. Now, apparently experts don't really think that tornadoes are necessarily linked to climate change. But these other extreme reports, like high temperatures, low temperatures, like these freezing polar vortexes that we get here in Kentucky in the winter, flooding, droughts, they are linked to climate change. Rather than speculating about how we might avert future negative impacts of climate change, perhaps we should recognize that it's already happening. What are we going to do about it as a society? You are listening to Bench Talk, The weekend Science, here on WFMP 106.5 FM, here in Louisville, Kentucky. On to the next story about science. I see there is an exciting new line of research going on in the neurosciences these days. Dr. Thalia Wheatley, a social neuroscientist at Dartmouth College, gave a talk at the annual meeting of the Cognitive Neuroscience Society that was held in San Francisco in March of 2019. Whereas most neuroscientists focus on what is going on in individual brains, like with an MRI scan... She thinks that there might be important changes that occur in our brains when we are interacting with other people. She hasn't named it yet. She says she might call it the super mind or the uber mind. But the idea is that our brains change when we're communicating in some way with another person's brain. So, for instance, research on incarcerated people who live under solitary confinement shows that their brain activity is altered because they're not interacting with others like normal. And this might also help explain how when someone loses a spouse or a long-time partner to death, there's often a rapid decline in health to the surviving partner. Perhaps a supermind developed between those two people, and that gets disturbed when one of them is no longer there. And laboratory rats that are deprived of interaction with other rats don't perform as well. Something changes. So Dr. Wheatley is designing portable brain scanners so she can measure brainwave activity of people as they're actually communicating with others. She's curious to see whether there's an additive effect to brain activity when we are interacting with other people. Oh, it's exciting to think of what we could learn from studying what happens in our brains when we're by ourselves versus interacting with other people or even interacting with nature or other animals. This seems to be taking a more holistic approach than just looking at how we function in isolation. There are some thrilling things going on in science. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area... You can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.